0: From NPR, this is Invisibilia. I'm yo Shaw. So earlier this season, we did a story about how negative feelings about power can make some of us want to avoid power in our personal lives, which can have consequences. I feel like I'm almost more comfortable smaller. But then occasionally, I'll get resentful or upset that I have found myself so small. (laughs) And while reporting that episode, I came across some ways in which negative feelings about power can also have structural consequences beyond the one-on-one intimate level. Consequences that can show up in the workplace.
1: Everybody can play the game, but
2: not me. Like, there's a lot of feelings of powerlessness.
0: And we all know work sucks, but could these negative feelings be getting in the way of seizing power to improve the workplace for yourself and others? Today, we will hear the unconventional methods a union organizer uses to help workers believe in their power.
2: I'm going to give all of you a bunch of empty bottles of ketchup. But
0: first, we're going to start with a conundrum. What organizational behavior researchers call the self-selection problem, which asks a basic question. Is one reason we so often see bosses handling power badly, you know, leaders who manipulate, take credit for others' work, who put profits over people, actually a problem with Who ends up going after positions of power in the first place?
1: There are people who claim to be chickens and actually are, in fact, snakes. (laughs) Uh.
0: (laughs) That's after the break. This message comes from NPR sponsor Talkspace, an online therapy platform. Talkspace's virtual appointments eliminate the need to commute to an in-person session. You can send text, video, or voice messages to update your therapist from your device. Talkspace is secure and private, using the latest end-to-end bank-grade encryption technology to store client information. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com and use code Invisibilia to get $100 off your first month. In the beginning, Peter Bellamy didn't have complicated feelings about power. He assumed the good guys would always win in the end— As his parents taught him, if you put your head down, do the work, treat others well, you'd rise to the top.
1: We have a phrase in Tagalog uh, that, if you translate it, it means that work as hard as you can, and God will do the rest.
0: Peter grew up working class in the Philippines. And when his family won a lottery to come to the States, he did what he'd been taught. He worked, full time making seven bucks an hour, and put himself through a master's program in the hopes of getting a steady job to support his family one day.
1: I thought that if I just worked really hard in grad school, that my work would speak for itself, that I would get noticed simply on the basis of how hard I worked and how good my papers were.
0: And everything seemed to go according to plan. His advisor noticed his research skills, encouraged him to apply for a Ph.D., So when Peter got into Stanford, he felt like he was getting his big break. Until 2013. When he signs up to TAA class, he doesn't know much about. Just that it's called Path to Power, one of the most popular courses at Stanford Business School.
1: So I expected that the class would be about something along the lines of Oprah coming in and talking about the secrets of success. (laughs) (laughs) and that you would feel inspired and energized to go out there and believe that you can make it in the world and make a difference. That was not how I felt on the first day of class.
0: What happened on that first day?
1: I remember feeling terrified.
0: On the first day of class, the professor walks in. A renowned organizational behavior researcher named Jeffrey Pfeffer.
3: I say to my students, this class is not for everyone.
0: Peter remembers Jeff basically saying, everything they've been told about how to get ahead in the world is a lie. That hard work alone won't do it.
3: If you do a great job and nobody notices, your job performance will be, of course, irrelevant to your success.
0: You have to play the power game. And if you want to have power to achieve your objectives, never have to leave a job involuntarily... Jeff says the social science literature points to these keys to success.
1: Treating others as resources.
3: I would rephrase that as being strategic in your relationships with other people, but that's correct.
0: Making alliances with people who are going to win.
1: That's also networking. Put yourself first. Don't be modest. Take up
3: space. You are responsible for taking the actions necessary to make you successful.
0: I don't consider that being selfish. Expressing anger to manipulate people.
3: Anger is a stronger emotion than many of the others.
1: And lying. (laughs) There's a straight up lying. You need to lie.
3: We can talk about lying, which has lots of value connotations, or we can change that to strategic misrepresentation.
1: I remember just like looking around every the entire class. I was like, Are we is this like a real thing that's happening right now? There was some silence, and I remember there were some very courageous students who raised their hand and basically asked Jeff if this was unethical. And Jeff responded with, If you want power, the only The only principle that you should follow is the principle of self-interest.
0: Wow, this is like a parody of what (laughs) business school students learn.
3: I don't think I said that. What I did say is that organizations are not going to take care of you, that you need to take care of yourself. I suspect that if we turned the tables in a relatively short period of time, we could find everything that you just talked about going on, even in NPR.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. As the course goes on, Peter learns about research showing how these Machiavellian traits, as well as narcissism, are predictors of who gets power in the real world. He learns that nice people might suffer from being too nice.
1: Jeff has this question that he asks students all the time. What would happen if you put a chicken and a snake in a cage? (laughs) And I remember my first thought was like, why are they in a cage?
0: (laughs) (laughs) That is the obvious question. (laughs) The final project was the cherry on top, where students put into practice the strategies they've learned in the course to do power in the real world. What kinds of things would students do?
1: They, they do all sorts of horrible things to each other.
0: For example, Peter heard that a student tried to get their company co-founder kicked out. And to be fair, not all the students chose to do power in a cutthroat way. But Peter can't give specifics. He didn't grade the final projects.
3: One of the rules I have in this class is that the only human big who reads their final projects is me.
0: And for his part, Jeff doesn't think any of these paths to power are horrible. And we should say, while Jeff says Peter's reaction isn't abnormal, the students we talked to who took Jeff's class didn't feel grossed out. They felt empowered. I am teaching
3: people about strategies. The value judgment of those strategies is independent of the strategies or their validity.
0: Whatever the case, the path to power class made Peter feel like his operating system was glitching if succeeding meant using strategies he found pretty gross, was it worth it to play the power game and get to the top? You know, do the ends justify the means?
1: I remember calling my mom about it, and I was telling her about this class and all the things that I was learning about about power. And she was horrified. She told me that that is not how I raised you. And I said, I know, Mom, but, you know, you got to play the game. And she, she did not like that. She said, if what you're saying is actually true, then it's much better to not have that. I mean, I think I went through the phase of, like, being angry about the class, and then I was sad about the class, and I felt hopeless in the class, And then I was just ready to quit.
0: What did quitting at that moment in your life look like?
1: I came to the conclusion that I will never be successful. That I will never be someone with power. That power was not uh, something that I wanted in my life. Everybody can play the game, but not me. I'm happy to just You know, be in the sidelines and live a quiet life.
0: But he still has a dissertation to write if he wants to get his Ph.D. And his experience in Jeff's path to power class got him thinking. He knew all these structural reasons, making it harder for marginalized people to end up in the room where it happens. But just because you get a seat at the table doesn't mean you feel comfortable speaking up. Your audience might not get your values, your goals. So Peter kept fixating on one question. Could the pathways to power at elite organizations be turning people from marginalized backgrounds off from even wanting to play the power game? Was he an outlier or part of a pattern?
1: I noticed that oftentimes the objections tended to come from women and racial minorities, first-generation college students in the class.
0: So Peter decides to conduct some surveys as part of his dissertation research.
1: Let's ask regular people, what do you think about power? What do you think gets people to the top?
0: He ends up doing a set of seven studies with over a 1,000 people in total, students and non-students, people with work experience and without. And he finds a few big takeaways. First he realizes he is not an outlier. Across a few of his studies, he finds that compared to folks from economically advantaged backgrounds, people from economically disadvantaged backgrounds, like him, were less willing to seek positions of power when they thought they had to do it the Machiavellian way because it conflicted with their values.
1: In a working-class environment where There's lots of threats. There's lots of uncertainty. Everybody has to coordinate. Because doing so helps us survive as a group. right? And so people learn in those contexts that what it means to be a good person is to be sensitive to the needs of other people, to see yourself as connected to others.
0: This tracks with social science that shows, in contrast... People from wealthier backgrounds are taught to value focusing on themselves.
1: We don't need others as much in order to survive. And so what it means to be a good person is to pursue your own identity, to figure out how you're unique compared to others.
0: Second takeaway, people from economically disadvantaged backgrounds said they would seek positions of power if they thought that power could benefit others not just themselves. But if it seemed like getting to the top required being a Machiavellian, they were more likely to opt out.
1: The students from more economically disadvantaged backgrounds wanted on average to be in the middle of the organization, whereas their more advantaged peers wanted to be in the upper middle and even at the very top.
0: Which means that the people we might want in positions of power you know, people who might wield it responsibly for the group, by taking others into consideration, not just themselves, they might get turned off from seeking those positions in the first place.
1: When we think of inequality, what we often consider as the main drivers of inequality are things like um, racism or classism or sexism. And what I am suggesting in my research is that inequality can also arise uh, when we structure our workplaces and schools in a way that excludes the cultural values and norms of members of underrepresented
0: groups. Today, Peter is a professor at the University of virginia Darden School of Business. And surprise, he's still in touch with Jeff— They do research together. He even recently spoke at a celebration for Jeff's career.
1: He said it was the single best speech he's ever heard in his career, but of course he was trying to flatter me.
3: He did fabulously.
0: And now Peter teaches, Black twist, his very own path to power class and covers the same power strategies he heard about in Jeff's class, which he actually sees differently today. He gets that Jeff wants his students to have the tools to navigate the world as it is.
1: And I'm very explicit that this is not the world that I want.
0: To acquire the power, they'll need to affect change, which is basically Peter's mission. But Peter's class is a bit different. He also highlights research that suggests you can get to power and influence using what some researchers call the pro-social way.
1: Putting a lot of effort in your job. Being authentic, modest, and truthful. Being very detailed and conscientious. Being a team player, helping other people, and being the person others seek for advice.
0: There isn't consensus on which path works better at the moment. And a lot of researchers, including Jeff, think both routes can be effective. Just depends on the situation. And in Peter's class today, he also stresses to his students that if they do get power, They need to stay vigilant against its negative effects, no matter what their background is. But they have an obligation to make change from the belly of the beast. Make it easier for future Peters and people like them. But when his MBA students say they want power to do good, and they're committed to not becoming part of the problem, Peter's still skeptical.
1: I'm very explicit with my MBA students that I don't trust anything that they say. Really? I, I, I... I know what power does to people, and I know what most people tend to do with their power. And I ask the students, like, prove me wrong.
0: Hmm.
1: You know? (sighs) Prove me wrong.
0: After the break, more negative feelings that can get in the way of changing the workplace... And the magical powers of throwing your boss under the bus.
2: Yo, we're a family, you know? Like, we've we've had such a good relationship. But now with this, like, union thing going on, right? Like, I just feel like it's going to really attack what you and I believe.
0: So we've talked about one reason why people might want to opt out of the power game. Now I want to focus on how people opt in. Go from feeling apathetic or demoralized at work to feeling so powerful they'll push for better treatment, better conditions, better pay. And earlier this year, I witnessed a pretty incredible example of this.
2: Yeah. Are you saying that, that if we unionize, we're going to close? No, not at all.
0: It sounds no, like you're insinuating. Sure yeah. Like no, 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 no.
2: See, I don't know how. I don't know how you heard that. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I heard this audio at an organizer training put on by the Emergency Workplace Organizing Committee, a project of Democratic Socialists of America and the United Electrical Radio and Machine Workers of America. It's from an internal meeting that a company held with its workers who were trying to unionize. It's awesome. And the trainers were dissecting the power moves the workers made in response to management.
2: As y'all were seeing, I saw the chat was going off. People were hyped, right? That's how you have to be when the boss is in your face.
0: And what struck me about the recording they played was the steeliness in the workers' voices. I mean, when's the last time you talked to your boss like this?
1: But it is illegal to threaten. I'm not threatening anybody. That wasn't a threat. If you perceive that as a threat. I'm just making
2: sure you're aware.
0: So you should know, I'm a new shop steward for our union. Shout out NPR, SegAFTRA. So, unions and the mechanics of how workers build their power, that's been on my mind. And in talking to several organizers this year, I was surprised to learn that changing how workers feel about their power is seen as a critical step to winning. That, in addition to all the other strategies power mapping, one on one conversations, forming an organizing committee, so many spreadsheets, organizers also think explicitly about feelings, getting workers to believe in their own power enough to do the work to build their collective power, to show up for the meetings, do the work. It's like the seed that helps the whole thing grow. But the problem is, here's how a lot of workers feel off the bat.
2: Just futility and just feeling like it's not going to change anything.
0: This is Alejo Gonzalez, one of the volunteers leading the training you heard earlier, He's a lead organizer with SEIU Local 105 in Denver, who in his five years of union organizing has worked with janitors, nonprofits, wheelchair pushers, window cleaners, nurses, on and on. And even though Alejo has won several campaigns to get union contracts, higher wages, safer working conditions, he knows workers aren't exactly wrong to doubt their power.
2: It's just nine out of ten times like it doesn't work. Right, like people fall off. You know, like right now I'm dealing with a, a campaign where people are like, oh yeah, we forgot about the meeting or like,
0: yeah, I try to get some... The Baseline, the power imbalance can feel rough. 49 states have laws that allow employers to fire workers for almost any reason. And when you walk into the workplace, management does control so much of your world. Your hours, your wages, what you wear... Whether you can take off to go see your mom who's sick. Whether you can openly disagree with your boss.
2: There's a lot of feelings of not mattering, right? Like, I could get fired tomorrow and this company isn't going to flinch. They're not going to give a shit.
0: But Alejo fiercely believes that workers do have power. Not so much individually, but as a group. And the more numbers workers have, the more united they are, the more powerful they are. Because, Alejo says, at the end of the day, a company runs on the labor of its workers. And if they all band together, that's leverage.
2: Now, it has to be organized, though.
0: So how do you convince workers they have power, especially when they feel powerless? That's what I wanted to talk to Alejo about. His tactics for pulling off what seems like a magic trick from the outside. And Alejo's methods even though they come from a long lineage of organizing, they have a particular flair.
2: I personally happen to be very cheeky myself and very corny, being from Illinois.
0: Take, for instance, Alejo's first tactic he told me about, trolling the boss. One time, Alejo was working with a group of janitors who did have a union, but were still struggling to get management to deal with the safety issue.
2: There was like this like really strong chemical during COVID That was supposed to be diluted, but no one got training on it. So they were just using it straight out the bottle, and it was, like, burning people's hands and giving them, like, respiratory problems.
0: So Alejo pitched an idea to the janitors to throw the boss off at the next meeting with management.
2: Normally, like, three people would come, right? It wasn't a big turnout because people were scared to go.
0: But this time, they told management to expect 30 workers. Except there was a catch.
2: I'm going to go in with the three that always show up first. These three women were just badass ladies. Everyone else waiting in the parking lot.
0: So when Alejo walked into the boardroom for the meeting with just three janitors, there were a lot of extra chairs set up.
2: And I was like, hey, is there any chance you guys can get all these chairs out? I feels a little cluttered, right? So, you know, like <laughs> presidents and like the CEOs and whatever, are, like grabbing all the chairs and taking them out, whatever. And then as they get the last chair out, I text the people out to come in. (laughs) And so then all of a sudden, like 25 other janitors come in and they have to scramble to bring all the chairs back in. (laughs) And so they're grabbing all the chairs and stuff. Right. I'm like, telling them where to put them and stuff. Right.
0: That's funny. It reminds me of slapstick comedy. Yeah. I mean, that's a power move. And if you're thinking this is a mean power move, well, Alejo would say it's also mean of management to force janitors to eat lunch in closets with toxic chemicals. Also, there's a point to the shenanigans.
2: And then we all left out and we got lunch after, right? And they were all just dying laughing like, oh my God, did you see him? Like He was running around. It was crazy. What is the importance of
0: effing with management in front of workers in these
2: smaller ways? It's funny. It makes you feel like you could get them. It makes you feel like you could win. They're not this big, scary, evil, but, you know, monster thing that you could never be.
0: But sometimes management can seem like a big, scary, evil monster thing. One of the more notorious ways in which management tries to intimidate workers is through something called the captive audience meeting, Mandatory meetings that management can call during the workday, where they subject workers to anti union messaging.
2: To scare people and make people feel like it's not worth it.
0: And they're often effective. According to one study, captive audience meetings can decrease the chances of employees forming a union by 26%. And so, union organizers do something called inoculation, where they run through boss messaging and often role play what might happen. So workers won't be so afraid. And Alejo takes us to a whole other level. Okay, so I've heard you also like to dress up as a bad boss. (laughs) Role play?
2: Yes. So if folks don't know me that well, right, or they maybe never even seen me, I'll shave my head, like nice clean cut. Like, I am bald, so I have to make sure it's clean anyway, but I, like, (laughs) put a little shine to it, a little jojoba oil, put a nice cologne on, and I put on just, like, a corporate-looking suit, (laughs) right? Like, get, like, a fat-ass watch from Target that looks expensive, but it's, like, 20 bucks.
0: And then Alejo will walk into an organizing meeting, ideally with a group of workers he hasn't met before, and kick the organizer out. He'll say, he's from the company to share their side of the story. So you like, you look the part, you smell the part. Mm -hmm. What is your boss voice?
2: It's very like, yo, we're a family. But now with this like union thing going on, right? Like, I just feel like it's gonna really attack what you and I believe in. (laughs) So I just wanna give you the facts. I want you guys to just know, right? Like what you're really getting into so that y'all don't make the same mistakes that so many other people have made. I'm here for you guys.
0: And if people try to speak up and raise concerns in the training, Alejo will snap at them.
2: And I'll be like, oh, is this person like somebody who speaks up a lot in meetings? Like, is this somebody who's always causing trouble? You should just watch out with that next time you're at work.
0: Oh my gosh.
2: (laughs) So after I do this training... I kind of reveal, like, hey, by the way, I'm not with the company. Like, I'm with, you know, and people just take a big breath. Like, holy shit, we were scared, right? Sometimes people are, like, crying.
0: People literally cried in your training? Oh,
2: yeah. It's
0: scary. And then after the emotional release, Alejo makes space to process what happened. And we'll talk about strategies to combat the fear. Like, bingo. A classic organizer tactic. Literal bingo cards with anti-union techniques and talking points.
2: We're a family, right? Uh, my door's open.
0: He'll explain why these points aren't valid. And then when workers get called into one of these meetings, they can play this game. Literally bring along their bingo cards to shake up the power dynamic.
2: Like bingo! And then like everyone starts cracking up.
0: But Alejo thinks what's most important, whatever the tactic, is workers experiencing their power working together on actions, and feeling their solidarity and power growing. He told me about a campaign he's working on right now, where workers are fighting for higher wages to keep up with inflation. And so he pitched an idea to the bargaining team.
2: I'm going to Restaurant Depot tonight. Tomorrow morning, we're all going to meet up. I'm going to give all of you a bunch of empty bottles of ketchup. Now, I want you to put those bottles all over the office. And not like, obviously, like in places like kind of hide them, right? (laughs) To where someone's going to see it and they're going to be like, is this the fifth ketchup bottle I've seen today? (laughs)
0: Like what's going on?
2: Yeah. Like, am I going nuts? (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, a week comes by and managers start asking workers, like, why is there ketchup bottles everywhere? And so I told them, I was like, if anyone asks, you say, it's because we need to catch up to wages.
0: Uh, ha ha ha. It's like dad joke plus performance art.
2: <laughs> and they work together, right? They're doing stuff together. You're not telling them collective power is powerful. You're really getting them to see it. When you feel like it's winning versus being told it's winning, it's just a totally different message you're sending people.
0: But it's not all fun and games, of course. Alejo says there are lots of tactics that go into building solidarity that are less shiny and still effective. Getting everyone to wear the same button or color to work, petitions. As for the more absurd tactics, Alejo says they should only be applied thoughtfully and strategically, with extreme care, always tied to a concrete plan set by workers. Because he has seen these tactics backfire before— Like the union getting painted by management and even workers as childish.
2: I gotta show them I'm I'm not just like a theatrical idiot. Because this is real shit. These are real people's lives and this is not a game.
0: There are always risks. And the revenge of the boss is real. Like one organizer told me this horror story about a group of workers who presented a letter of demands to their CEO. And not long after... The CEO just shut down the entire company and fired everybody. So have you seen workers get fired during an organizing campaign?
2: Yep, I have. Mm. I can think of one specifically who got reinstated and he was livid, man. Lord, he was livid. And I was just so upset with myself.
0: Alejo says he makes it a point to go over the risks at every step with workers, to be transparent and ethical, which to me makes this whole process of building collective power so compelling. How powerful workers must have to feel to lay it all on the line. How do you know when a worker's feelings have truly changed? Like, is there a tell?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's just this, like, change in almost like how people carry themselves, right? And how they walk, right?
0: For example, there was this very sweet and quiet grad student Alejo worked with on a campaign.
2: Like, not, like, super outgoing.
0: And after a few organizing actions, Elihu noticed the guy seeming a little different.
2: I noticed he's got a chain on. Like, a silver chain. And I was like, okay.
0: And later, when they were phone banking...
2: He comes in, like, chest pumped out. Like, he's been working out and shit, right? <laughs> and I was like, what is going on with you right now, you know?
0: And he was just like, man we're going to fucking win. And I was just (laughs) like, okay, man. And then there are the more profound transformations that move Alejo to this day. He told me about meeting a woman on a picket line he was supporting and how one day she seemed upset and not just about her work situation.
2: And so I just did a friendly like, hey, how are you doing? Like, are you okay? Just, are you okay? And she wouldn't talk to me, but... Talking to some of the other folks, the story came out that her partner was just like a flaming garbage bin of a human. Just a piece of shit. Made her feel small, like made her feel like irrelevant.
0: The union ended up winning their campaign. Got better raises, better protections, better health insurance.
2: That day we found out, we were all on the picket line together, and she had that look. Like that like, oh my god we won, like she didn't even believe it was gonna happen.
0: And a couple months later, Elihu ran into the woman at Target. And this time, when he asked her how she was doing.
2: She was just like, very energetic. And I was like, oh, she's just like happy the union went. And she's like, I also left him.
0: She left her toxic partner.
2: And she just like, was just like so much more confident, you know, like she didn't, he didn't deserve me. You know, like she just was like fucking radiating, man.
0: I've actually heard a version of this story from several union organizers. Someone even put it like this. They know they're winning a campaign the moment the women start divorcing their abusive husbands.
2: They'll just realize their worth. You know, like they'll realize like, like, I don't deserve this shit at work and I'm Mm. gonna go home to this shit. It's just a beautiful thing knowing your fucking worth, (laughs) like feeling like you're worth something, you know, and that it's worth fighting for. Sometimes it takes a long time to get people to realize it. Sometimes people never want to realize it. But when you can get people to feel like they have just even a drop of power, it's a beautiful fucking thing that happens with that.
0: it for today's show and our season. You can find links to Peter Bellme's research and Jeffrey Pfeffer's book, The Seven Rules of Power, on our episode page. This episode was produced by Ariana Garib-Lee, Abby Wendell, Liza Yeager, Dan Germa, and me, with help from Lee Hale, Claire Marie Schneider, Andrew Mambo, Phoebe Wang, and our incredible intern, Sarah Long. This season of Invisibilia was also produced by Kia myak Our supervising producer is Liana Simstrom, and our supervising editor is Nina Patuk. Fact-checking by Rachel Brown, research help from Susie Cummings and Will Chase, mastering by James Willits, legal and standard support from Micah Ratner and Tony Cavan. Our technical director is Andy Huther, our deputy managing editor is Shirley Henry, and our senior vice president of programming is Anya Grundman. Special thanks to all the students of Peter Bellamy we talked to. Also. Stephanie Luce, Jonathan Smucker, Melini Stamp, Joe Friedman, Stephen Pitts, Bill Fletcher, Pam Smith, Joe McGee, Barry Eidlin, Nicole Kligerman, Claire Hirschberg, Patrick Kate, Adelina Lansinez, and Jennifer Schmidt. Our theme music is by Infinity Knives. And additional music in this episode provided by Ramtin Eric Louis, William Cashin, and Connor Lafitte. And that's a wrap. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. We'll see you next season.